Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This week, Bijan is at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, where he's interviewing some interesting startups. I'm your co-host, Lucian, and I'm going to be providing some introductory material for these interviews. This week, we're going to hear from Stephen from MakerDAO and Siri from Draper & Associates. These are two fairly well-known companies within the blockchain ecosystem. Make or Die is a really interesting experiment um, that has proven to be very resilient, especially because it has essentially stayed equivalent to $1 despite the dramatic drop in the price of Ether. So um, DAI is not necessarily a algorithmically backed stablecoin. In fact, in the interview, um, Stephen actually corrected Bijan, although that is probably the most common association um, you would hear when someone is asked, how do you categorize or how do you explain DAI? Instead, it is a collateral-backed stablecoin, but that collateral is locked up into a smart contract that everyone can see, and the DAI, which is the uh, US dollar-based stablecoin, is actually issued as a loan on top of the Ethereum that is locked up in the smart contract as collateral. So basically, there's 2 million ETH currently locked up in the DAI stablecoin smart contract, which is actually close to 2% of all of the Ethereum supply and has a total value of over 250 million US dollars. But there are about um, 79 million DAI currently in circulation. So what this means is that um, there is a collateralization of 329% which is a lot higher than you would expect from something like um, USDT or the Coinbase alternative. Um, I forgot the name of it. USDC, I think it's called, which basically holds a dollar in your bank account with the exchange and then uh, issues you a token at a one-to-one -one ratio. So the interesting aspect about uh, maker is that it's transparent and the smart contract is entirely auditable. These numbers that I just listed out, um, you can look up on the Ethereum blockchain for yourself. And um, I used a tracker that Maker has on their website that basically summarizes this data. So you actually get this guarantee of stability simply by uh, participating in the smart contract. Now, how does it maintain a one USD peg with Ethereum? As you probably are well aware, Ethereum fell quite a bit, and um, US, uh, sorry, DAI and its US dollar equivalent um, stayed relatively close. 
Um, I think the most that it actually deviated from the norm was um, something like less than three, maybe I saw it four cents off of the one dollar. Um, but the reason that it always reverts back to the mean of one dollar is essentially because the economics incentives that are put into place are such that if the price of ether underlying or backing up the loans falls, then people are actually expected to liquidate the die that they have as a loan in compensation if it ever falls below 150% coverage ratio. So what this means is that um, people can always essentially exit their die position if the value of the ether that they have locked up falls too much. And this is also the reason probably why there is such a higher percentage of collateralization versus the underlying die that's um, being uh, held. Because if you hold it at the minimum 150% coverage ratio, then what happens is that if it ever uh, dips below it, there are people with the incentive to actually liquidate your position and um, essentially think of it like, for example, a bank repossessing a house and selling it into the market in order to pay back your, uh, your loan for you. And there's a penalty associated with this, and it's about um, 13 18%. Um, but there is a substantial penalty with actually falling below the collateralization ratio. So either you over collateralize your die position or you um, simply make sure that um, you constantly fill up your account with ETH if the price falls and you don't want to cash in your die. Additional interesting topics that were covered during this interview were the new multi-collateral smart contracts that DAI introduced and had formally verified. And this allows for any ERC-20 token to be uh, used as collateral for the issuance of DAI. And the interesting thing about this is that uh, Bijan um, spoke in depth with Stephen about how any blockchain asset can actually be used as collateral in the DAI system. And um, they basically said that as long as you can um, discover the price and you have the ability to liquidate an asset at the price, um, then you're able to actually use it as collateral. And um, the only thing really stopping you is uh, what Stephen referred to as recourse. And it's like, ability to actually execute and obtain that price, uh, which I found very interesting because currently they're also looking in the ability of using what we would think of as non-traditional tokens like security tokens in a similar way. And I find this particularly fascinating because the applications to a broader um, financial application are really evident in this because it is a transparent financial product that can actually work with real assets and as long as the trading is done entirely on chain it could be completely transparent and i could only imagine um, how far this can go 
so I find that very exciting as well as um, a different aspect regarding um, the future plans of Dai. And um, Bijan asks a very good question of what does it mean for something to be stable? Um, and is the US dollar actually stable? And what happens if the US dollar doesn't remain stable? Um, how does Dai maintain stability even if its peg isn't necessarily stable. And um, in one of the most interesting um, perspectives I've heard from the blockchain pace, uh, space, they essentially uh, mention the fact that currencies have typically been started as commodity-backed, but moved into a faith-based or a fiat-type uh, backing. And a very similar thing could happen to die as well in the sense that if it's always pegged to the value of a specific dollar then maybe it could be pegged to the trust of the arbitrage mechanism that underlies the die token itself in that a pool of assets kind of like a global reserve currency could essentially represent a uh, medium value and it could be free floating um, this is something to think about. I might have jumped to a further conclusion than the uh, they originally intended, but I find that deeply fascinating and exciting, and hope you do as well. The second interview with Siri, an associate from Draper & Associates, shows the perspective of um, a venture capital firm in the blockchain space. And I actually knew of Tim Draper, but I actually had to look up exactly why I knew of him. And it ends up that Tim Draper was the person who um, auctioned, won the auction for the Bitcoin that was recovered from um, Ross Aldrich, Aldrich, Aldrich um, who was the person running the Silk Road. And um, after winning that uh, bid, he probably became one of the largest Bitcoin holders um, outside of the people who got in extremely early. This was back in 2014, and it obviously paid out to be an incredibly good investment. Um, and their presence in the blockchain space is of a well-respected traditional venture capital company and it's interesting to see their perspective a lot of the interview um, talks about their um, different strategy between what an ico would bring to the table and what a, a vc would bring and a traditional VC actually has an investment thesis. So Siri talked about what they're looking for in a company that they're willing to invest in. And one of these is essentially having a thesis validation cycle, as in you have a hypothesis on how to make money within a certain business, and then you execute and you validate to show that yes there is actually a market and a way to make money and then you want to scale up said thesis and validation and you usually should come to an investor in that the point in which you say okay this works now i need more money to do it again but bigger 
And、um, one of the lines that she said that I found really interesting is that a lot of the people who receive funding from them don't get it right away. And、um, she gave a story about how、um, investments came six months after、uh, the original discussion, in which they kept updating.、Um, The VC through by email、uh, with changes in their financial situation. So they would continuously provide、um, updates to their investors regarding the progress and basically showing that not only had they previously achieved good financial results, but they're actually able to continue. And I find that really interesting as well because normally you would assume that you go into a pitch meeting and they would give you a decision and up or down on whether or not they want to invest in you. But the idea is that if you can show sustained growth and a continued execution of your original plan, that also gives the、um, VCs themselves a lot of good information to work with. So another aspect that.、Um, I found very interesting about this interview was the fact that、um, data speaks for itself. Essentially, if you have a good business plan, all you need to do is properly track your actual underlying、um, metrics, and you have. And they basically said that、um, you. Basically, need a simple idea. The value proposition shouldn't be extremely complicated, and let data speak for itself. So it's as if a sale is being made to the investor in a simple hypothesis, and your actual business metrics being its validation.、Um, the two other tips that they recommended in dealing with、uh, traditional VCs are、uh, to reach out to them. Write to them. You don't need an introduction, as many people assume. And they actually、uh, mentioned that、um, they like to hear from、um, the actual technical founders as well. And it shouldn't just be a designated person from the business unit who does all of the outreach.、Um, and、uh, Siri also made a call to women and minority.、Um, Founders, because they seem to、um, be less willing to kind of put themselves out there and uh, apply, um, and essentially, Siri and I think the entire blockchain space is definitely looking to、um, kind of diversify and bring in more opinions. And、um, her call to action was essentially that all are welcome, and、um, hopefully, if you have a business idea. Um, hopefully, you would think about reaching to, towards traditional finance as well. And now, before we start our interview, I just wanted to warn our readers that there is a bit of background noise due to the fact that Bijan recorded these interviews live on the floor of CES. So, if you'd like to listen, thanks for bearing with us, and、uh, enjoy.
So I'm here with Stephen from MakerDAO. Uh, I know this is an exciting project for our listeners. Uh, DAI, the stable coin, is really cool because it's the most stable algorithmically backed stable coin that, that I've seen. Um, it's held its stability in this down market really incredibly well. The first question I'll ask for you, Stephen, is how much more of a beating can, can Ethereum take before DAI starts to be in trouble? Or is it not, not really an issue? To be honest, it's not really an issue because the way that it's been constructed is to actually make sure that the, the risk management of your CDPs holding ETH is very much in the hands of the users. So it boils down to how much risk your users want to take. If you find out that we have a massive contingent of, of extraordinarily risky people, well, then you have your, your issue at hand. But looking at the the website, you can see very clearly that the users of CDPs are not that risk-loving. They actually are quite risk-averse. The, the whole infrastructure is roughly about 300% over-collateralized. Considering the, the liquidity, I, I'm talking very specifically because I know, as you said, your audience is, is very clear as to uh, what we're doing. Uh, because liquidation ratio is 150%, there's still quite a bit of buffer left in the system. I got you. So, you go. so with multi-collateral die, which is the next step of the evolution of the stable coin, how does that change the picture for users of the CDP, CDP product and, and so on? Does it just increase the stability of the platform naturally by giving more options to investors to create these CDPs? Or, or how, how, does multi, how does having multiple collateral um, die actually help with stability? Well, the first thing you want to keep in mind is that risk management of the system is the most essential to providing its stability. And obviously diversification is premised to why you want to have many collateral types in the collateral portfolio. Um, the more diversified you are, the more stability you have to the system. And, and we're, if everything in crypto uh, moves together, how do, we, how do we say that this is any more stable, even if it is a different piece of collateral? If they're all correlated, which you could argue they are or aren't, if they are, then would there be any benefit? Well, the first thing you have to keep in mind is even though ERC20 tokens, which is effectively the collateral types that we accept, they do move lockstep with each other. Not perfectly correlated, but they are somewhat correlated to the point where you're not going to get a material diversification benefit, but you're going to get something. The thing that really excites us is the security tokens that are going to be coming out in 2019. The other thing that's also very exciting is if you have a look at our use cases, the one being with TradeShift. Now, TradeShift is the lead in supply chain payments and marketplaces. So why do I bring that up? Because we are helping them tokenize their invoices to use as collateral types for them to be able to create a more efficient supply chain finance solution, but at the same time, increase the supply of diet. So it's not just the case of saying, well, um, everything seems to be correlated. There are some really good assets, sorry, collateral types coming out that we can actually add into our, into our portfolio. Wow, so I, I didn't even think that STOs could be used as, or, or, or security tokens could be used as a piece of collateral in the multi-collateral die. Is that, that's, so that's the case, or not? That is the case. The big as long as they're on the Ethereum, 
ERC as long as they're ERC 20. That is correct. So what? Okay, please continue. Uh, so from that perspective, there is one element that defines if a collateral type will be included, and that is recourse. Right now, what we're doing is we're using price discovery in secondary markets as our point of recourse. If, uh, if a CDP gets liquidated, the collateral comes out and folks go to the secondary market to liquidate. But with non-fungible tokens, which could be the representation of invoices all the way through to other asset types that could be included, I'm going to just put on a side there, think about arts. There are some great guys out there that are tokenizing arts. It could be used as long as the recourse to a liquid event is there. And recourse is digital recourse or legal recourse as well? So Both. if you had to pull back and recover that art piece, yes. because there was a liquidation, you would have to liquidate that art or do something with it, I guess. How do you get the legal jurisdiction to do that? Where It has to be built into that token. That's correct. It's got to be built into the organization that manages that, that manages token. The token. That's correct. Because that has to be tested. That's got to be fully validated and verified so that if you do use um, a call an alternative type of token other than your, the normal that you see on the exchanges right now, it boils down to the fact that you need to make sure that you have price that is discovered that you can liquidate into but more importantly you have the avenue taking you to that liquidation event and that is really where the legal element comes in and that's from our point of view that's where the transparency is very important not only are we decentralized and trying to focus on the transparency of our stablecoin which allows auditability but it also applies to cdps as well yeah and and with the this is it's super interesting that you need the legal recourse to be able to liquidate. You need price discovery as well. So where do you get, where's the Oracle problem in all of this if the prices of any given asset are important to the liquidation and the, the algorithm that is stable at or keeping die stable? You've hit the nail on the head. The Oracle is the, the, the pricing Oracle for these collateral types obviously are paramount importance. Right now, we can obviously source the appropriate um, articles for, for ETH. And with multi-collateral DAI, and I won't tell you what collaterals we're going to be selecting, you know, obviously you can keep following us on, on Twitter and Medium and, and Reddit to, to find out what's, what's happening there. But uh, essentially, what you find is no matter how you look at it, you need to establish where your recourse is and you need to establish what that price is either through some sort of clever transformation like a medianizer which is what we're using right now or you need to establish something with that particular organization so it's tricky but it's something that actually can be solved interesting so i think in the short term it seems like the ER, the digitally native solutions the cryptocurrencies that are erc20s fully auditable price discovery is easy and recourse is easy because you can lock away that, that money and it's taken and liquidated. Those seem like the first step. The art and security token and other things that maybe more in the real world seem like they're a little bit further out but also on the radar. And as long as the legal aspects of recourse and price discovery are figured out, then you can technically make collateral out of anything. Exactly, you go to spot on. And let's talk about stability. So. We know that that um, that 
die is kept stable by algorithms and the, the community of people that are participating. May I correct you there? Sure, please. Okay, die is not kept stable by an algorithm. Okay, that's the thing that we need to sort of clear up right sure. now, is that you've got your centralized stable coins that are backed by Fiat, right. and now we are part of the decentralized stable coins, well actually the only decentralized stable coin that is backed by collateral. So there isn't an algorithm in place that says, oh the price is too high, we need to increase supply. That is a function of the arbitrage mechanism that actually is inherent in stable coins in general. Right. So it's, I, I appreciate the correction because it's it's a term, it's a way that people talk about yes. stable coins and compare them to dollar-backed stable coins. Um, it's not algorithmically backed, it's collateral-backed. Collateral-backed. And it's using software which happens to have algorithms, but it's not really super relevant. So on that note though, how does DAI, how do we say that DAI is more or less stable than a dollar-backed stable coin. How do we compare the stability of a dollar-backed or die-based stable coin? So that is such a good question because the first thing in my mind that I step back with and I say, well, there is a spectrum of risk to stable coins in general. If you decided to go the centralized stable coin route, you are going to pick up on a collection of of risk profiles that you're not going to get with decentralized and vice versa. What you've got to decide then is how you would like to approach this problem. The stability mechanism seems very clear from the centralized point of view where you deposit a dollar and you get a token. But what you don't see is how a bank functions because the way a bank functions is effectively where your risk is. Right. It's the counterparty risk of trusting the bank Correct. to hold my funds and then have them available and give them to me when I want them. Now then it talks about I won't go into the details but it talks not only to the stability but the fungibility of tokens as well. Where if you have a look at a decentralized stablecoin like, like DAI, well actually decentralized stablecoin being DAI, you'll find that it is completely transparent where you can see exactly where it derives its stability from, from the, the standardization of the collateral that should be used. And the fungibility is, is uh, sorry, the standardization of the stability from its peg that it uses, and its fungibility from the standardization of the collateral it uses. So everything from stability to fungibility is very clear, unchained for what is looking. Auditability, very simple from a decentralized point of view. Auditability from a centralized point of view, it is a risk that you have to consider. It's not an untenable risk, but it's just one that you need to keep in mind. Yeah, and and and. With DAI, you're getting the benefit of being able to, like you said, fully audit it yourself if you want to, but it also makes risk assessment just far easier because, because you don't have insight into the bank, you have no idea how to assess risk. But at least with Maker and DAI, you can inspect the code, you can look at the CDPs that are out there, you can see how much is collateralized, and you know the exact rules for liquidation, so you can judge your risk with let's say, higher uh, precision. Is the, are there any insurance products that are available to protect liquidation risk? If I am a CDB holder and, you know, I just, I just don't know if there's, if, if there's going to be a liquidation, can I buy a supplemental insurance to protect me from that? Well, interesting you should say that because the short answer is yes. And it comes in the way of a type of credit default swap that uh, 
I can't remember the, the organization's name right now, but they're actually implementing something like that. Now, from the maker system, you're going to find that every single stakeholder, being the CDP users, MKR token holders, DAI users, and then the keepers, each one of those groups are creating their own ecosystem. And the one you're talking about is basically for the keepers. And for the CDP, actually, funny enough, for the CDP users and keepers at the same time. There is so much economy that you can actually build around this. It becomes fascinating and sometimes a little bit mind-boggling to consider all the permutations. All right, because you can build the entire credit derivative or the derivative market with smart contracts using the stable coin of DAI and the other ERC-20 tokens to create all sorts of financial instruments that would be impossible with traditional software. Absolutely. Let's talk about something that I think is relevant as we've seen a 20, you know, nearly 20% drop in the stock market in 2018 uh, in the US. There might be a recession on the way. People are talking about where did that trillion dollars of quantitative easing go? When are we going to see inflation? Inflation is a risk for all stable coins that are denominated in US dollars. What does this mean to you? If the, if the promise of Bitcoin comes to fruition that Bitcoin is worth a million dollars each, what, is the, what does it mean to have a dollar? If Bitcoin is a million dollars, if one Bitcoin is a million dollars, then who wants to have dollars? And who wants to have stable coins if dollars have no value? So if there's inflation in the dollar, how do you look at the importance of DAI and keeping, how do you keep that stable in the face of systemic risk of the US dollar itself? Well, you've got to first look at it from a sort of a top-down approach. If the US dollar goes, you can be quite confident that a lot of currencies around the world are going to be going with it, um, considering that it is the de facto reserve currency of the world. So if we find ourselves in that particular position, I would first think that it would happen progressively over a number of years, but DAI specifically, the way that it's constructed, it doesn't necessarily have to be just pegged to the US dollar. It could be pegged to any source of value that you can create. There's even the possibility, and this is a little bit futuristic looking, DAI takes on its own currency and becomes its own currency. So you start denominating things in DAI without a concern for a cross-currency calculation. I can't imagine how we would move in that direction because ultimately the peg is what brings a lot of the stability, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, because all the participants need to have a single place that they look, this is what a dollar, how much a dollar is. And if there's no peg, then we're all just kind of guessing what other people think. Well, actually, no, this is the, the premise of most of the, uh, most of the monetary history that we're looking at. It all starts off being based on some sort of commodity and then slowly moves into a basis of trust. Same and that's what happened, happened, went from gold to dollars, yes. and then we went off the gold standard, dollars were gold-backed, and then they were not. That's why they're called fiat, because fiat is effectively a sense of trust that you give to the government to make sure that they hold steady the credits of that particular currency. And so the, the, the peg, so the US dollar used to be pegged in a way to gold, Correct. and that peg floated away from gold once there was enough trust in the system to have it sustainable and stable on its own. The whole basis, and this is something that, if you cast your, your mind back when you read your history books about 2007, 2008, 
It was a credit crisis, but the credit crisis came from a lack of faith, a lack of trust. The interbank market virtually collapsed because one bank did not trust another bank. Lehman Brothers. There we go. I mean, there was so much of that that nobody wanted to do business with anyone else because you did not know how far the hold went down with your counterparty, so you did not do any business. So the QE that came out, QE1, QE2, quantitative easing, it was there to try and bolster people to get that trust back. It was an extraordinarily slow process, but that trust can also be used in going from, especially in a hyperinflation hyper environment with uh, something like dollars, you could go from dollar backed all the way through to DAI being the single currency that is used from a basis of trust. It is something you can't think about right now, but history shows that it is something that can happen. I, I, I like thinking about it as a transition, a slow transition like we had with gold to US dollar. Who knows if dollars will stay stable? Hopefully they will for our sake, you know, ultimately. I agree. I don't know what will happen to the world if, if all currencies destabilize, but hopefully there's an off-ramp in something like that and, and cryptocurrencies in general, if and maybe when that happens. Um, we I think we've talked about Dai on the show and Maker. We, we really love the project and what you guys are doing. Where do you see the path to a billion dollar market cap for Dai? Real, real impact on the, on the cryptocurrency space to compete with Tether and everyone else? So the first step back I'll take on this one is that I don't think a billion dollars is enough. What I'm very keen on seeing is how our community translates the the momentum that we've got in single collateral die into multi-collateral die. And with that, and this is an important part, is that MakerDAO not only is in the business of generating a stablecoin, the way we generate our stablecoin allows us to actually create economic growth. The CDP and the die combination are the two principal factors underlying most economic systems. So you could actually see the possibility of people using SDOs for their small caps to finance their working capital, to finance their operating costs or their operating expenditure and actually grow their goods and services on the blockchain. So MakerDAO is not just about a stable coin, it actually is a facilitation of economic growth. And I think something that is more to the heart of our, uh, um, our co-founder, Rune, is also about economic empowerment allowing each person to be able to facilitate their own bespoke financing solution using MakerDAO. Right. Be your own bank. Be your own bank. Be your own facilitator. Be your own financial institution. Correct. You're actually much broader than all of that, to the point where you can look after yourself and what you want to do at rates and at costs that are competitive and completely in your control. Keep in mind, you own your CDP. It doesn't belong to a third party right. who makes judgments on it. So, yeah, I, and, and I, I'm, my mind is going through all the possibilities, and we don't have enough time for that on this show, but I appreciate it, Stephen, for, for you coming down and, and talk, chatting with us here at CES. Uh, we look forward to seeing Multi-Collateral Die and your announcement here soon. Um, let, let's, let's give our, our uh, listeners a take. What, what should they be doing to help promote the ecosystem from your perspective? What do we do to get the next 100 million users into crypto? I think it really boils down to asking a simple question of how do we facilitate transactions? How do we facilitate them in a stable manner that allows us to grow the economy? This is 
pertinent to every single organization out there that wants to provide a good or service on the blockchain. How do you get your transactions out there? How do you make them more frequent? How do you actually uh, contribute towards this economic growth that we're starting to see on the blockchain? All right, love it. Can't wait to see what's next. Thank Thanks. you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, everyone, we are here with Siri from Draper Associates. Yes, that is the Draper Associates, Tim Draper's venture capital company. And Siri was here earlier talking um, and doing a moderating a panel here at CES, and I was able to pull her down to chat about Draper Associates and what they're doing in the space, but more importantly, some of the misconceptions that entrepreneurs in the space have and, and some of the things that Draper Associates focuses on when evaluating uh, companies in the, in the blockchain community. So let's just start with, you know, how do I get funded? I think this is what I see a lot of people. They go up, they go to these conferences like CES, they've got a great idea, they see there's a venture capitalist on stage, and then they come up and they want to ask a question. And the first question they ask is, I have a company, I want to get funded. Do you have any advice for me? And, and when they really should be saying, this is my company, this is why it's the best thing ever and why you need to invest in it. But they're asking for that kind of advice. Anyway, so. uh, I think first of all, I have a whole lot of decisions that we all have made, but I don't think it's insane and takes a whole lot of uh, it takes a lot of gumption to be able to do that. But I think that uh, it's also a very noisy world, whether or not you're at CES, whether the phone is or whether if you're emailing someone VCs are getting a bad name. I think that's been true for a very long time. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really complicated sort of statement to make. Uh, just like there are all kinds of companies and all kinds of founders, all kinds of people, all kinds of VCs. So I think what may be really useful for people to understand is what VC uh, is about, how it, how it came to be, and not going to go into the history of VC markets, but uh, essentially uh, VCs play with a lot of risk, right? So we know that we're investing in companies that are extremely high risk. Uh, venture capital equity in private companies is the highest, the riskiest sort of investment we make. But we also know that because it's so, well, not because it's so risky, but alongside that risk comes a whole lot of upside, right? So we, we do succeed, you do find a payment, you do find a point you do find a net Right, so it sounds like you need to de-risk the 
entrepreneur and their project and their team before you at least before you give them money you want to you want it to be de-risked as much as possible not not as de-risked as but okay with okay with so okay so but but you're at what stage are you focusing your investments on is it you're not angel investors so you're not taking on all the risk you want founders to prove something yeah. before they come to you for sure we we're primarily early stage investors so that means we focus a lot of our time
selling yourself and your team but not necessarily your product to consumers who are actually using it so 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 the advice that I'm hearing from you Siri founders in the space is build a business show traction then get investment on that traction and build the next phase the next thing that you're gonna validate so that you can get that next round of funding to propel you to that next thing that you need to validate so that you can get to the bigger market. If that sounds very preachy, uh, also remember that the more uh, metrics you have when you go to a meeting with the VC, the better price you're going to get. Uh, and this is something that the best founders have learned too late. And this is important too because you don't just want to get funded. You want to get funded at decent enough terms so that you don't get, you know, have a down round later, let's say, or it, let's say if you take too much money you're going to be at a disadvantage uh, for a number of reasons. You have to deploy that capital efficiently, and if you don't, then you might have to take a, a down. You might have to lower your valuation in, in your next fundraising round. What are some other issues with the terms and the, the fundraising amounts that, that that entrepreneurs are asking for? Thank you. 
and they're very liquid. They have they have unlimited liquidity, so they can sell their stake immediately, and your coin can crash. Exactly, and this is something that companies like um, Uber, for instance, have have held off. They've right. stayed private for dec- almost a decade now because they don't they want to stay private. Right. Being private is actually beneficial because your investors can't can't sell out and then lower the valuation of your company. The, the lack of liquidity, see VCs, traditional VCs know to be patient with the Right. Uh, but retail investors who are investing in, in ICOs and stuff, yeah. they're very fickle. And their only comparable really is, is the stock market where you know something You can buy and sell whenever you want. Exactly. So uh, often, uh, so when the ICO case was at its highest, everyone was coming to us and saying, VCs dead, ICOs, ICOs are how everyone's going to raise money. And it's, I think that fundamentally misunderstands how uh, networks or coin offerings work. Um, because the, I don't agree that everyone should be offering a program or selling a program instead of sharing, instead of uh, using uh, some other currency. Um, so I, I think it's very misinformed this idea that ICOs are the future of venture funding. But uh, that is that's something that we really think about. I mean, I don't know if you follow, I would sometimes jump into When moon? When <laughs> moon? Why this happened? This is a scam. And and and, the, and those naysayers, that that fear, uncertainty, and doubt actually sows doubt in the whole project. And before they've had a chance to succeed or fail, they're they're getting you know sidelined by the community that invested in them in the first place because the token price is going down. If you don't if you don't have a product to prop up the, the token and you're trying to do an ICO or something, it's it's very it's very hard to show that you're gonna be able to actually succeed in the long term. Because if you yeah, if you're not building if you don't have the users to justify the trend like the, the coin from the moment that coin is is uh, is minted, then you're gonna see downward pressure on that price until you do have user adoption. And so are you seeing that uh, companies in this space, now that we've seen the ICO craze, are holding off more on that because they don't want to see their one opportunity to come out of the gates get destroyed by a depression in the price? You know, uh, I do think that there's a lot of companies pushing their tokens to us now. There is also the other trend that we noticed around last year was even before the, you know, the price Investors and not like not even accredited investors, but institutionals, because you know what they wanted, they wanted uh, tokens out there, but they also wanted sophisticated investors who wouldn't panic in the uh, first time. That's yeah, that's fascinating. And okay, also, well, well, the um, I I I think what what is one message that you want to get out there to the entrepreneurs in the space who are building companies who would love to have Draper Associates as a lead investor. What do they need to be focusing on? Uh, a number of things. I would say, uh, one, definitely follow the thesis validation cycle. Basically, come down, it comes down to what is the thesis of my product or company and how have I validated it. Uh, 
definitely be got 40% more food coming because you know I think self-doubt or like or any such thing you may be holding yourself back so definitely reach out to VCs more and have conversations instead of this is my company give me money yeah I think that's, a, that's very good advice I mean ultimately the people who ask the question of money are more likely to get it than people who don't, right? And a lot of people are afraid that they don't have enough to talk to investors. But the truth, the truth is, as I understand it, and I, you know, who am I? But reaching out to investors at any stage of your company is a good first step to start building that relationship. Because if you can show investors, even if they're not ready to invest that day because you're looking for angel funding but they focus on Series A, at least they're going to see your progress over time. And you're going to show them that you're committed to your project. These are signals that are important in the end to getting investment. And the people who are focused on building may not have as much of a push to go talk to people, talk to investors, as those who are more sales-minded. And some of those folks who are building great products are just not being seen because they're not going out there and talking to them. That's, that's a good point. I asked my friend, uh, Laura, who's the CEO of this great logistics company, uh, and she said, you know, we were talking about cultural, uh, cultural, cultural things that will be back, and she said something wonderful. She said, let the data speak. Oh, if you don't want to brag about your company, yeah. let the data that's the number one investment. Uh, the second thing is, you'd be surprised how many of our investments came to us through Coldina or came, happened after we got five months of investment updates. One of our founders, he's they're doing very, very well right now, uh, told me about how uh, Tim finally invested after a uh, The money for half of the day, right? Monthly updates for six months. Well, that's great to hear. I think that the, the, these lessons are amazing to hear them from a VC that's been so close to the crypto community. It's great to hear. Don't be afraid. Reach out. Let's let's see those projects come to life. We all want to grow the blockchain industry together. So, and, and Draper VC, Draper Associates, and Tim Draper, are, as well as Siri, of course, uh, as an associate there, are helping to bring this uh, into reality. So thank you for joining us at CES. Uh, we look forward to seeing uh, the new announcements coming uh, about investments that, that you guys are doing. Great, thank you.